Amen. Thank you, Evan. And good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Uh, before we dive into our text, I did want to make a, a quick announcement that we decided to save until you're all here. I know some of you missed the, uh, if you missed the first round of announcements, but it has to do with these right here. Um, so uh, I think many of you might have noticed that our mayor declare, declared a state of emergency uh, that will go into effect starting tomorrow uh, that is requiring masks. So we are obviously going to uh, follow with the mayor's recommendations in that indoor mask order. So once again, starting uh, next week, the masks will be required uh, in the building. We're going to continue to function uh, as we are, where it will be uh, socially distanced in the balcony, uh, but uh, not socially distanced down below. So you can choose to navigate the uh, signups uh, as you please based on that information. So I know that uh, maybe not what we were hoping to hear, but uh, we're going to trust that uh, people smarter than me know what's best for us. So we're going to dive in this morning to our word, uh, to the word. We're continuing in our sermon series in the gospel of Luke uh, that you may know. Uh, and this morning we're in Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be reading a little bit of a longer text, uh, starting in verse 40, and we're going to be reading to the end of the chapter. And I invite you, if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. It says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one 
what had happened. Prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. Would you speak to us now through your word? Would you allow me, your servant, to get out of the way so that you might bring your truth to us, your people? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of traveling to the Bahamas for my wife's best friend's 40th birthday party. It was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience, an experience that I came oh so close to missing out on altogether. See, back in April, I realized that my passport had expired, and so I began the process of renewing my passport. However, apparently there were 100,000 other Americans who were also renewing their passport at the same time. And so after about a month of no response from the passport agency, I finally received word that my passport was coming, but it was going to arrive two weeks too late. Now, I'm a problem solver. I like a good problem, so I got to work. And I'm not exaggerating, I think I logged about 20 hours on hold with the passport agency, maybe two to three hours actually speaking to a human being, and yet all to no avail. The passport was not coming, and so I kind of began to give up and began to communicate to my wife that I would not be joining her on this once-in-a-lifetime trip. But then someone else who was on the trip got wind of what was going on and said that I should contact congressman, which I thought was bizarre, but I did it anyway. I reached out, and the congressman's aide promptly called me back and said, do not fear, we got you. And after months and months of calling and waiting and trying everything I could come up with, the very next day I received an email that said my passport had been approved and was in the mail, and it was going to make it in time. Now, the moral of this story is is pretty obvious. In spite of all my problem-solving skills, I needed to learn how to ask for help. Sometimes, I just don't have what it takes. But I need the help from someone who has more authority, more power, more ability to save than we possess or I possessed in and of myself. Our story this morning is about two people who, after years of problem-solving on their own, finally come to the realization that they cannot save themselves, and therefore they choose to seek the help, the salvation of another. Before we dive into our text, I want you to ponder this question this morning. In what ways are you seeking to problem-solve your way out of life? In what ways are you failing to recognize that you really need the help of another? See, I believe our problem is not that we don't see our need, but rather that there is something in all of us that inhibits us from coming to Jesus with our neediness. My hope and prayer this morning is that as we meditate on God's Word, that we will learn more and more how to lay aside that which is in the way and more often and more swiftly come to the one who promises to meet all of our needs. 
As we begin our journey into Luke chapter 8, the first thing that we notice about our text is that it involves not one, but two miracles. Instead of following the normal rhythm of, of telling a story one at a time, Luke actually mixes two stories together here in chapter 8. And the reason why Luke does this is, first of all, because that's how it actually happened. Remember how the Gospel of Luke begins. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, Luke is desiring to give this orderly and detailed account. He wants to tell the story how it actually happened which means that Jesus really was attending to someone and he was interrupted by someone else and Jesus made space for that interruption and then he returned to the first person who had requested his aid. The other reason why I think Luke tells the story this way is because there's a point that Luke is trying to make here that can only be seen when we look at the two stories in unison, when we look at them at the same time. Which is strange because at first glance, these two miracles seem to be as different as they can be. Why should we look at them in concert? I mean, look at the two people that Jesus helps. We've got Jairus. He's the ruler of the synagogue, a member of the religious elite. And then there's this unnamed woman. All we know about her is that she's had this issue with bleeding for 12 years. I think it's safe to say that likely these two are not best of friends. They probably weren't even Facebook friends. Their lives were as different as they could be. Jairus was at the top of the food chain. A synagogue leader was not just a leader in a spiritual sense, but also in a social sense. The ruler of the synagogue would not have had just wealth, but also immense status and clout. He would have been respected and revered by all. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have this unnamed woman. She was a nobody. It was pretty hard in and of itself to be a woman in the first century in Israel, but because of her condition, she was pushed even further to the margins. What's the big deal about this condition? Most scholars believe that she likely had some sort of uterine hemorrhage. Who cares? Well, the problem is that according to the law of Moses, Leviticus 15, a woman with a discharge of blood was considered ceremonially, ceremonially, that's hard work, unclean. And so one who is ceremonially unclean is forbidden from ever entering the temple. She's barred from public worship, but it gets worse. If you're ceremonially unclean, you cannot be touched. Because, verse 19, whoever touches her shall also be unclean. So what this means, I want you to get this picture in your mind. Twelve years, this lady has never gathered for worship. And worse than that, she has never been touched by another human being. Not a hug, not a kiss, not even a handshake. Can you imagine? And yet Luke marries these two people in this story. And the reason he does this is what Luke so desperately wants us to see is that although these two people are as different as they can be, their experience of Jesus is exactly the same. 
What we'll see in this text is that both Jairus and the woman, they start out distant from Jesus, then they become desperate for Jesus, and in the end, they ultimately become dependent upon Jesus. So that's what I want to look at with you this morning, how these two individuals went from distant to desperate to utterly dependent. Let's begin. The story no doubt assumes that neither Jairus nor the woman had ever encountered Jesus before. And that begs the question, why not? They were obviously pretty needy. Jairus' daughter certainly didn't start dying yesterday. And this woman has been struggling for 12 years. Why not come to Jesus sooner? I think the answer is the same for both of them. It's pride. Listen to this definition of pride. I think it's helpful. Pride is an excessive preoccupation with self, with one's own importance, achievements, status, possessions, or lack thereof. Pride exists whenever we make life too much about me. Look at Jairus. Jairus, his pride comes from the fact that he's got all that he needs. He was probably as self-sufficient as one gets in the first century in Israel. No need, no want ever went unmet. Which makes sense why Jairus was inclined to keep Jesus at a distance. I mean, what did Jesus have that Jairus needed? To be American in 2021 is to struggle with this type of pride. No offense to Amazon, but I wonder if free two-day shipping is not one of the worst things that has happened to the souls of Americans in a long, long time. I'm not saying I don't love it like the rest of you, but have you thought about what are the consequences of being able to have whatever you want or need on your front doorstep in two days or less? I'm not saying that to be American is to live a life of bliss, but you don't have to travel far outside of this country to see how much of us, how much we are sheltered from many of the harsh realities of life. I ask you, in what ways is your ability to meet your own needs, to fill your life with comfort, causing you to keep Jesus at arm's length? Look with me now at the woman. In what ways is her pride causing her to keep Jesus at a distance? The answer is right here in the text. Look at verse 44. It says, she came up behind Jesus. She touched the fringe of his garment. She snuck up on Jesus. She was trying to get in and get out to remain unnoticed. And she did this because her pride said that she was unworthy. When the woman looked in the mirror, she saw filth. She kept her distance because she believed that someone as lovely as Jesus could never associate with someone as unlovely as her. What do you see when you look in the mirror? I think if we are honest, although we may not all relate with Jairus' privilege, we can all relate to the woman and her feelings of unworthiness. Where does that show up? For you? Is it in the workplace? Is it in your parenting? In the classroom? On the athletic field? Is it in your relationship with God? 
Do you feel unworthy around the sins, struggles that keep coming up over and over in your life? Do you look in the mirror and see that loser who can't carve out enough time to read their Bible and pray? What is it that makes you reluctant to face Jesus head on? That makes you want to, like the woman, sneak in and grab his cloak and slip away? We all struggle with unworthiness. Which of these do you most relate to? The self-sufficiency of Jairus or the unworthiness of the woman? What causes you to keep Jesus at a distance? I know for me it's a little bit of both. The encouraging thing about this story is that neither Jairus nor the woman stay there. Both of them end up shaking off their pride and drawing near to Jesus in a profound and beautiful way. Let's look first at Jairus. Isn't it amazing that Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, doesn't send one of his servants to go get Jesus and bring him to him? He doesn't even come to Jesus as as an equal and try to negotiate some sort of deal. Verse 41, Jairus comes as a beggar. A high-ranking official would never hit the ground in front of a man like Jesus, especially not Jesus, who the religious establishment did not like. But for some reason, Jairus falls on his face, and he does this in front of a whole crowd of people, heaping shame upon himself, possibly costing him his job. Look at the woman. She's required by law to isolate herself, to keep herself away from other people, And yet she disregards the law. She slips through the crowd and does the one thing she's never supposed to do. She touches another man. She touches Jesus. Why? What motivated this religious leader to beg at Jesus' feet? What motivated this filthy woman to move in for a touch? The only explanation is desperation. They both became utterly desperate. For Jesus' help. Where does desperation come from? The word itself comes from the Latin desperare, which means without hope. What we see here is two people who had exhausted all hope. They'd tried everything else and nothing worked. So in desperation, last ditch effort, they did what they had been trying so hard to avoid. They went to Jesus. Now here's the problem for you and for me. Desperation is not something that we can manufacture. You can't create that in yourself. However, we need not worry. When we seek to do life apart from Jesus, the result is we will become desperate. I can vividly think about moments in my life when I was looking to things other than Jesus to save me. Whether that be a romantic relationship, the approval of someone I really respected, success in school or sport or work. And when those things were taken from me, those were those moments in my life where I found myself so utterly desperate for Jesus, falling at his feet, grabbing a hold of his cloak, hoping for his rescue. So what then is the application 
for you and for me, if we can't make ourselves desperate, how do we prepare for these moments when the rug is pulled out from under us like it was for Jairus and the woman? I think the application, what this text is encouraging us to do is to position ourselves as best as we can near to Jesus. So that when life throws something at us, we're ready. When you lose your job, when your child is sick, when your ailment isn't going away, when your family is falling apart, when your addiction is taking over, when your depression becomes unmanageable, when your friend stabs you in the back, when you feel like you have no friends left. We position ourselves to be near to Jesus. We fight the pride that says we don't need any help or that we're too unworthy to be helped. We fight our tendency to keep Jesus at arm's length. How do you do that? It's not rocket science. We do this through prayer. We do this through spending time daily in God's word, through loving our neighbor and serving the marginalized, through gathering weekly for corporate worship, through partaking of the sacrament. This is how God instructs us to keep Jesus close. And the benefit is if we do this, when life happens, when desperation sets in, we don't have to go searching for Jesus because he's right there beside us. What makes this story so wonderful is that in the end, Jesus does for both Jairus and the woman that which they could not do for themselves. He moves them from desperation to dependence. But notice how Jesus does this. He moves them in a way that's unique to their life story. Let's look first at the woman. She was an outcast, a pariah outside the camp. And the reason why is because God made her so. Or at least that's likely how she felt about it. It was God's law that was making her life so miserable. And so no doubt she felt like he was the one who had rejected her most. But she's desperate. She has nowhere else to go. So she goes to the one who claims to be the son of God. And it works. She touches the cloak of Jesus and she's healed. And Jesus could have left it at that. He could have let her get hers and slip away. That's what she wanted. But he doesn't. Verse 45. He asks a question that he clearly already knows the answer to. He says, who was it that touched me? Why is he doing this? I want you to think about what would have happened if the woman had gotten away unnoticed. Healed, but without being called out for it. I think she would have always wondered, did he really want to heal me? Would he have healed me if I'd asked? Or would he have cast me aside like everyone else? But Jesus doesn't let her ponder these things. For Jesus, the physical healing, it wasn't enough. He calls her back, and look what he does. He gives this nameless girl a new name. She comes trembling, expecting him to yell at her, to cast her aside. And instead, he speaks softly to her. He says, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
See, Jesus knows that the only antidote for shame is for someone who really matters to communicate immense worth and value. Do you know that God does that for you? The God of the universe has adopted you by choice. He's picked you to be in his family. He made you his own because he delights in you. And he gives you a new name. A name that communicates immeasurable worth and value. He calls you daughter. He calls you son. Beloved. Heir to his glorious kingdom. Look with me at Jairus. How does Jesus move him from desperation to dependence? See, Jairus doesn't need a new name. He's already got a pretty good name. He's got status and notoriety more than he can handle. No, he really needs the opposite. He needs to know more fully that he's not good enough, that he doesn't have what it takes. Jesus knows that to move someone out of self-sufficiency, they have to be taken to the end of themselves. Jairus needed to know how needy he really was. And so how does Jesus show this to him? Well, he, he chooses not to attend to him first. I wish I could have seen Jairus' face when Jesus stopped for the woman. I mean, clearly Jairus knew that time was of the essence. His daughter's life depended on it, and Jesus has the nerve to stop for this disgusting woman. See, Jesus knew it wasn't enough to simply heal Jairus's ailing daughter. Jairus needed to know and become fully dependent upon this man. He needed to taste the desperation on an even deeper level, so he delayed not just for the woman, but for Jairus too, so that his daughter would die. Jairus needed to see that this man doesn't just heal, but he raises the dead. And it was that miracle that moved this man from desperation to dependence. Church, do you see why Luke puts these stories together? Two people as different as can be, yet both experience the healing touch of Jesus and their life is forever changed. As we prepare to close, I want to give you a word of caution. Luke is calling us, like Jairus and the woman, to move from distance to desperation to dependence. I want you to to caution you from walking away from this story thinking that dependence is a a binary thing. That either we have it or we don't. But rather, we must acknowledge that dependence is something that we often move in and out of. We experience it sometimes in large doses and sometimes it feels almost non-existence. And if you ever feel discouraged by how much dependence you have and how your dependence ebbs and flows, just look at the disciples. The 12 people that Jesus selected to bring the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth who constantly struggled to depend on Jesus, constantly struggled with trusting in their own merits. So be of good courage there. At the same time, allow this passage to work on you. Learn from Jairus and the woman. If you stay close, 
And in your desperation, you turn to Jesus. You will find, as one commentator says, that Jesus is ready and waiting to heal anyone who falls down before him in faith. Anyone who reaches out to touch the garment of grace. And the hope for us is that every time Jesus shows up in your life, the result is that you will find more strength and more courage to depend upon him more and more. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we struggle daily to depend upon you. We look to anything and everything. It's safer, it's easier to keep you at a distance. We want to be so desperately self-sufficient. It doesn't feel good to be needy. It's scary. Father, we thank you that you are ready and waiting for when we come to you desperate ready to receive from you, that your hands are stretched out to touch, to heal, and to embrace. Father, teach us to, in our desperation, come to you and depend on you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.